Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Welcome again to the Out of the Question podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have Chalcedon's Vice President, Martin Salbretti, with me. Now, many may not know that Martin is a man of many talents and interests. Among them are music composition, computer technology, health, history, theology, and happens to serve as Chalcedon's resident expert on the writings and philosophy of R.J. Rushduni, specifically Rushduni's commentaries, his views on Christian reconstruction, and of course, theonomy. Martin, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure's all mine, Andrea. I might also add that Martin will be a featured speaker at the upcoming Faith and Medicine Conference that'll take place near Atlanta, Georgia on February 4th and 5th. And I'm hoping that anybody who's in the area, driving shot, flying shot, will make it a point to be there because the people who are putting on this conference are solid reconstructionists and have a real sense of the need for the church to present itself ready to obey God in the areas of health and medicine. But today's discussion will not take away from Martin's thunder at the conference, but it will serve as a preface or foreword to his talks at the conference, and I've asked him to join us to discuss this. Just like Christian schools and homeschooling, began to provide options for Christians who wish to be faithful and recognize that statist education wasn't going to provide that for them. Areas like medicine, justice, care for the poor, poverty in general, and homelessness, these all need to be reclaimed. But here's my question, Martin. How can people reclaim that which they didn't know belonged to them in the first place? Well, that's a journey of discovery, isn't it? Uh, sometimes we learn the hard way that we've given up uh, ground to the humanists uh, by default. Basically, we were asleep at the switch. I'm not always convinced it was uh, that we're uh, culpable and evil for doing it. But once the uh, light turns on, it's time for us to then to take uh, action and be proactive. I think the Christian life ought to be proactive rather than reactive. And the more that we start to apply that consistently across the board, the more we're going to see more uh, additional territory over which Christ has a legitimate claim as king, as a lawgiver, and as the judge and savior of it. And uh, so in the instance of health, we've had the growth of a large medical uh, institution over time. Uh, in the last 200 years, and there has been very, very little pushback. It's been assumed that it was running on a Christian autopilot, if you will, uh, but its humanistic roots became more and more obvious over time to the point that some individuals started to say, hey, it's uh, we need to uh, recover some of this. This is being propagated in a direction away from God's kingdom. Uh, God's word is not being allowed to speak into this space. Uh, one of the first, I believe, to have done this in a serious way was uh, Dr. Ed Payne, who uh, I'm very pleased to say will be speaking at this conference. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, he, in my view, was the tip of the spear in uh, attempting to correct this oversight on the part of Christians. And so he started uh, very, very small, just like the Chalcedon Report started small in 65, started a countermeasure with his Journal of Biblical Ethics in Medicine. And he invited other Christian doctors to contribute, and they were basically pioneering. There was no one doing this kind of work in essence. And so it was a uh, pioneering effort to have doctors consult each other and to say what would the correct approach to this be, because... Uh, Medical ethics had been uh, unleashed and unmoored from the Bible for quite some time. So reconnecting these things to deal with all the various medical issues that come up, ethical issues in particular, uh, was a big step. And it was the same thing that happened when homeschooling started to be uh, to rise up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. 
uh, it starts to grow. It starts to grow with grassroots efforts by individuals for whom uh, a passion for this need being met is being realized. So that, I think, is the, the starting point, because if we didn't have doctors even dealing with the ethics, then the rest kind of is becomes less and less relevant. It's just how does this benefit me personally versus what does God require across the board in this area? Are we um, figuring out just better ways to abort babies and to euthanize humans, or are we saying these things should not even be on the table? Rather, it should be alternates. We should have biblical answers about these complex questions that are raised continually in the church has given what I call an indistinct trumpet sound. Right. <laughs> and so uh, Ed Payne has been one of the first to uh, gather the troops, if you will, and therefore, as, as if you will, the, the senior citizen of uh, the recovery of a biblical notion of what medicine entails and what the uh, position of the doctor should be. Uh, I think that's a huge step, and I'm, uh, I think that we're building an essence on a foundation that he started. Just like right. in the areas of Christian reconstruction, we're building on Foundations that were laid by Calvin, uh, Abraham Kuyper, Van Til, Rush Dooney, etc. Uh, same thing here in, in the medical field. And so these are initial steps. But I can tell you this, given what's happened over the last two years since the coronavirus hit, the, this conference is an unwelcome conference because it invites an alternative to humanistic medicine and its claims of ubiquity, of claiming that it's the sole arbiter of truth and should be the sole governor of what the narrative says and uh, who wants to control all conversation and dialogue on this point and uh, essentially claims all the facts for itself. So this alternative uh, conference is big in this respect, that it uh, it is stabbing at the heart of the monopolistic claims of modern institutional medicine. And this is across the board. From every angle you look at it, and there are multiple angles we might get into in this conversation, these first steps are important. They should be supported. And uh, I hope that they extend. This is the second conference of this type, of this name. And I'm glad that they decided that though the first one was small, they wanted to do it again. And despite the fact that we have a still a pandemic of sorts, they plowed ahead, and it looks like it's going to be a larger uh, attendance than before. And I think this is all to the good. These first steps are going to be important in setting the tone for how serious are we about the Bible and applying what God says to these things, letting him have a voice, perhaps the ultimate and authoritative voice yes. in many of these areas. And if not authoritative, at least in these areas, guiding guiding us uh, where we might have some blindness. Now, Coming to understand what you said, recover. Rushduni has a position paper where he talks about the loss of memory, that most people who he felt were going to be reading his work were born after 1940. And by the time 1940 comes around, there is a lot of humanistic fact, and I'll put fact in quotes, that everybody knows because that's what ta what's taught in schools. And so people don't have a real knowledge of how Christendom came to be. And our good friend Vishal Magawadi has sort of outlined this in his book, um, how the Bible changed civilization. But how do you tell people who don't know their history in terms of their forebears of previous believers, that things like hospitals and hospitality and universities didn't spring out of humanism, but sprung out of Christianity. Well, of course, we're being deprived of our history in the first place, and, and that's by design. I mean, there's a reason why they had a, uh, a cultural revolution in Red China. It was to wipe out history and start with a fresh slate, a clean slate. Uh, also in Cambodia, that was the issue is that we find anyone wearing glasses, they must be an intellectual and should be executed so that we can uh, stamp out the stain of the past and start with a brand new template for a new utopia. So new, new utopias mean all the past has to be wiped out uh, or altered. You know, we have revisionism is massive. The irony is that eventually we get to the point where when Christians speak, the revisionism is so deeply entrenched in humanism that they think we're the revisionists rather exactly. than that we're recovering the original vision, usually from original documents. So 
I've written on this topic and engaged other uh, um, scholars and uh, pundits on this issue of uh, Christian history and, and what it means for us, because uh, it's significant that the first hospitals were, in fact, run by the monks in the monasteries, uh, that the that healing was something that they thought was part of the dominion mandate, that uh, God expected them to be exactly that. You know, when you were talking about Vishal Mangalwadi, I think he's very big on a, a rather unique interpretation of the trees in the end of the book of Revelation. He says, here's the river of life, and on either side of it are these trees, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Now, normally we think of this in terms of literal trees, but he's pointed out that there's an awful lot of scripture in the Old Testament that backs up the idea that these trees are people. In other words, right off of the first psalm, you know, the man who meditates on the law of God is like a tree planted by rivers of water, bearing his fruits in its season and leaf not withering. So here we have all these things laid out. And he takes that image from passage to passage in scripture and shows that, in fact, one of the functions of all these People who are rooted in, in meditating on the law of God is that uh, their leaves, their works, if you will, are intended for the healing of the nations. And I think this idea, if not in the form that Vishal has placed it uh, before us for consideration, but at least in other nascent forms, has driven the church to consider its cultural obligations and duties and responsibilities toward the weak, the infirm. And by infirm, we mean the sick. You know, if you look at Psalm uh, 40, in 41, but 40 in particular, and, and also 18, we see references to uh, those who are in a sickbed, and, and there is a bed of illness, and, and I think is that translation, and that God calls out. So there's a, there's a connection between what God says and our illnesses, and perhaps the connection has been broken that the, by modern humanism, which breaks our connection to God in every other respect. Why not in respect to healing and illness? So we have a history here. The first universities were all founded by Christians and the, because only the Christian worldview had a notion of a universe, not a multiverse or a polyverse, but rather that everything is united because it's God's creation and is moving toward the goal that he has set forward inexorably. And the same thing with its uh, emphasis on hospitals and things. This was in the feudal era prior to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment wasn't calling for the creation of hospitals. It was the prior era that was steeped in Christendom, applied at a very, originally a very decentralized level that created and spawned the birth of hospitals, where healing was taken seriously as a ministry of the church itself. We've lost sight of this. Dr. Rashtuni and other papers in, in the book that we have uh, of his uh, on, uh, on health speaks about the priestly and Levitical role of the doctor, that he functions very much like the Levite did, who was responsible for health and welfare in ancient Israel. And so a recovery of these ideas is important. doesn't turn them into priests per se, but it does point out that their calling is a high one, and it is one that is a serious calling and Right there, I use that word calling, a vocation, God's call upon them to reach out to their fellow man and to offer what they can in terms of healing. Uh, and, and I think that's an important element that Dr. Rashtuni recaptures for us. But knowledge of our history is so important because when you are insulated from your own history, then humans can remake your past. And if you don't know what the past is, you have no idea where you're going. Right. Once, once we recover our understanding of the past and gra- grasp the historic notions that are placed here, uh, then we realize there's a trajectory and that we have a purpose in terms of the past where the first steps were taken, the first precedents were set for us to walk in, and for us to have ignored that legacy, that heritage is a, is a big error and it creates a whole. And humanism is nothing if not uh, very vigorous and uh, diligent in filling any holes that Christians leave in any area. It fills them all. And yes. so Christians need to then dig in, create new foundations if they don't exist or have been lost or covered with dust from our negligence, and move in terms of confidence that if Christ is with us, who can be against us? What can man do to me, as Hebrews 13 says? You don't right. have to worry about all the objections of the existing medical situation. Uh, self-governance, then it applies to every area of life. Uh, we don't suddenly reserve the medicine as a purely humanistic area any more than we do any other science or any other ministry. 
our mistake is thinking that man's way is better than God's way. But man's way is always the way of the transgressor, and the way of the transgressors is hard, the scriptures tell us. Right. So putting it back on a biblical basis, realigning with scripture, there may be a lot of uh, liberty in there. I think this is another thing that's scary from the point of view of humanists. They like uniformity. <laughs> they like everything conformed, conformed to this standard or else. And in the Bible, we walk at a wide space because we seek his statutes, as Psalm 119 informs us. So we walk to a different drummer, a drummer who allows us a lot of space, a lot of liberty, um, something that humanism cannot tolerate because it wants to control all the variables to create utopia. Whereas God uses his spirit and no one knows where it goes or how it travels, but it goes where it wants to go or he goes where he wants to go more accurately. Yes. And so the fact that the spirit is a part of medicine is an important part. And that's what kind of what I'll be talking about at the conference, the reuniting of the spiritual and the, the, the physical, the biological. So I think it goes to show when Dr. Rajduni and Calcedon in general put its emphasis on education because education is the process by which you relate what God's word says to everyday life and you look at history. And I'm constantly struck with the fact that in casual conversation, and I've done so recently, mentioned that Christians first started hospitals, hotels, that prior to the Christian influence in the first century, there was no such thing as a place to stay when you were on the way from one place to another. Those places traditionally were houses of prostitution. And so people look at me, Martin, kind of like, are you making that up? And it it strikes me that if people have not been influenced from the time they were young, Christians now, I expect humanists to hate God and do everything else, everything they can to subvert his word. But people who were raised in the church and, you know, they can go back generations and say, my, my parents and my grandparents were Christian. They don't have a sense of their heritage is more in line with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than it is with Patrick Henry, George Washington, and the founding fathers, because they don't realize that Those people had a heritage they were looking back to. And so our ignorance often is what's crippling us, don't you think? Oh, very much so. You know, people have no vision. You know, they run wild. Uh, And that's a vision, of course, of what the Bible says and how it's to apply to their lives. That verse, by the way, continues, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So the contrast is between those who run wild or perish, but run wild is actually more accurate, and as Dr. Rashuni points out, uh, versus those who uh, structure their lives according to the law. Let's be honest here, uh, Andrea. Easy Street is always attractive. You know, it's it's the easy way out, the the quick and dirty, and therefore when folks like ourselves point out that the history shows that we've fallen from a great height and we're going to be culpable for making that fall worse. Well, Easy Street calls to us and say, well, we can justify our indolence and our laziness and our sitting on our hands uh, if we adopt our theology to say this is all supposed to fall apart anyway. So we've always said at Calcedon, it's a hard sell to say we are promoting responsibility by Christians. Of course, that's exactly what God's word is, and that's probably why people focus on the parts of God's word that don't speak to them so directly or pointedly in regard to their duty and obligations. We talk about the grace of God and His what he's done, which is all to, to the good. It's all true. But that suddenly does not mean uh, we uh, have nothing left to, to offer or to do. Uh, we're supposed to be busy at our posts. We're supposed to transact business until the Lord returns. And that transacting of business is to be done according to how he tells us how to do it. Um, plus, I don't see how you know, we get away from what the Lord tells us. He says, you know, which father among you, when your father, when your son asks for bread, gives him a stone? Or he asks for fish and you give him a serpent. But what we're doing to our next generation when we ignore the past and ignore the heritage that's been handed down to us, which we become unmindful or forgetful, is we're doing exactly that. We're giving our children stones and serpents rather than bread and fish. And I think this is we're going to be called to account for this. Uh, we yes. need to walk by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
this is the only way that Jesus, uh, he laid this out when the, the devil confronted him uh, during the temptation. He says, man is to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That quotation from Deuteronomy is key. How are you yes. to live? By every word. That means every jot and tittle is important because, and that means that the word of God is a whole. It's, an, it's a, uh, uh, it's a package deal, if you will. And it's got a lot in it about everything from the great to the, to the tiny. As Rush liked to say, kingdom of God is one of the few things that can command nations and instruct a child from the top to the bottom because it permeates and involves and, and, and brings us all into its sway. And so the kingdom of God ha- is growing currently on the earth, and we are to have a part in its growth. Not supposed to be putting the brakes on that growth or heading it in the other direction and helping the humanists sap it at the core of the foundation. So ignorance is harmful. There's nothing safe about ignorance. Uh, we're to grow in knowledge and love and, and grace and all these other things, but knowledge is certainly in the mix. And so and this is why, and I've quoted this many times, in Hebrews 5, we're told, for the amount of time that you've been a Christian, you should be teachers at this point. There comes a point when you're supposed to then take what you've learned and be able to propagate it to others, to reproduce that scholarship, if you will, in others, your children, your neighbors, your friends, uh, if necessary, even your own parents, to the extent that you can, peaceably. <laughs> yes. But But the point is that there's an expectation of growth. The, the Bible is always about growing, because if you're not growing, you're dead. I mean, True. spiritually dead. You, you become a walking zombie, in effect, and you are not cultivating the things that God would expect us, uh, because he, he made us and created us to grow in knowledge and understanding uh, and wisdom. Wisdom is how to apply properly the things we know. You can certainly grow in knowledge and not in understanding and wisdom, we're not calling for that. We're not calling for that kind of knowledge, but we're saying to ignore knowledge entirely, uh, especially of our past, which then guides our steps into the future, is a mistake. Uh, in the latest Arise and Build, I happen to again quote from a passage, I think I believe it's in Isaiah 51, where uh, God says, you know, look to the rock from whence you were digged, look to the quarry from whence you were hewn. You know, these are the, the concepts that are laid out. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who bore you. Look to your history to see where you're going. If you see if you see where you came from, you can have a better grasp of where your feet should be lining up for the future. So if we're ignorant about the impact that Christianity and the faith has had, the Bible in particular, on medicine, then we're more inclined to let the humanists have at it. They're the experts. They got the doctoral degrees. They have all the research dollars. Why shouldn't we listen to them? Well, there might be tremendous reasons not to listen to them. Yes. Because we were already warned that God does confound the wisdom of the wise. (laughs) He's fools to confound them and the weak to confound the strong uh, and the poor to confound the rich. So uh, all the things that we uh, esteem highly is not esteemed highly by God. But whoever honors God and what they're doing, God will honor them. And to think that medicine is exempt from all these categories and all these imperatives in Scripture is to make a colossal mistake and basically saying the great physician, Jesus, is no physician at all because we have nothing to hear from him and his word about medicine. That's a big error and a huge omission. And the conference like this is walking that back and saying, no, we have a heritage and we need to gain additional ground as we go forward into all these areas. And so people are thinking, they're being imaginative, and they're being creative in medicine, and they're saying uh, perhaps things that we ruled out before were mistakes. Maybe humanism guided our steps here, there, and the other place. Maybe the body's more complex than the mechanical model of medicine that's promoted in medical schools uh, allows for. So I'm not saying be so open-minded that everything goes in, including nonsense, we need to be discerning, but also don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We are not necessarily machines, uh, as, even though that's the humanistic picture of us. Right. We're more than machines, and we're not just going into the shop for an oil change. Uh, there's a spiritual component, and the body and the mind and the soul uh, are all interconnected in ways that are fearful and wonderful, and we need to take into account for that. So the work that's being done with conferences like this and with the doctors who in their practices are 
step-by-step recovering these things or looking backward in time saying, where have we stepped before and what have we lost sight of in terms of our legacy here? So we have both looking backward and also looking forward to saying, what steps can we take in light of God's law to illuminate the practice, to improve what we're doing, to help our fellow man, to be good physicians uh, and fulfill these Levitical and priestly functions that uh, we've been called to, to see ourselves mirrored in the scriptures that speak to these things. I think this is a huge uh, accomplishment. I don't think we should sit on our laurels and say two conferences is going to do it. Right. I think 10 years from now, we'll be looking back with fondness on this small conference because it'll probably grow to five or 10,000 people in several places around the country uh, if God wills it to grow. And I trust that he will because we desperately need it especially now that men's faith in modern medicine has been shattered, shattered because it is in disarray uh, and it is uh, it cannot tolerate even minor criticism. It has to shut down all critique. And the second we've uh, removed critical thinking from this process, we have a tyranny by definition. You know? Yes. And one of the things that's, I think, a blessing from God in the midst of all this is it shows how bankrupt their view and philosophies are in that they have to change them regularly because what they said last week has now obviously, because people share information, they have to revise it, but they sort of revise it in such a way to say we were right then and we're right now. So my question, Martin, is when did people seed the um, responsibility, the priesthood of all believers and give it to experts. Why are we so fixated on experts? People who have letters after their name in physics, in medicine, in law. How did that come about? And how do you unwind people from that set of think that, that way of thinking? <laughs> it reminds me there's a book out there. Some, a title to the effect of The Last Man Who Knew Everything. And I think it was sometime in the 17th or 18th century this man lived. And at that point, human knowledge in all areas was not so large that one person could not, in fact, absorb it all. Uh, but then, as things decentralized, we had division of labor, as Dr. Gary North puts it. Uh, then all these specialties would crop up. We would dig deeper and deeper and then have to split into these different specialties. And then it became impossible simply for the amount of data that was being accumulated, the amount of information, the amount of knowledge uh, for one man to know it all. So then you had to trust individuals and those individuals then would form various, some might call them cliques or guilds or organizations or institutions where this knowledge then could be promoted and studied and that specialty could continue to grow and subdivide into even further subdivisions and smaller specialties. Uh, as knowledge specialized, we kind of dug deeper down, but there was a less of an understanding of the whole across the board. In other words, we gained depth, but not uh, area coverage, uh, breadth, I will. Mm-hmm. Breadth, of, breadth of learning suffered. So people became specialists, very rigid specialists. My doctorate is in the uh, sexual patterns of the this nematode worm in Africa <laughs> during its third uh, cycle of reproduction. And that would be, for example, a legitimate uh, doctoral dissertation in the biological sciences, something in that order. You get the idea that it is so minute and so uh, specialized, but it shows that you can handle that. But when we're going and drilling down that deep into such teeny things, how do we reintegrate all this stuff? The only one who has all this knowledge together now is God himself. So I think referring back to scripture is going to allow us to have that God's eye view, that big bird's view, bird's eye view, if you will, that overview, that biblical worldview that allows us to say all these things do integrate. This is what all the good uh, Christian educators have been saying for the last century, uh, and even and some that even are marginally Christian, but they've said, look, modern education is fragmented. It offers a fragmented view. It doesn't unify anything at any level. It teaches the fragmentation of all things, as uh, John Taylor Gatto put it. Now, here we, he was a what uh, New York State Teacher of the Year for one or two years running. Yes, and uh, he turned around and bit the hand that fed him, you know, that created him. But that's what his point was. As I teach the this. 
uh, relating, the unrelating of all things. They're not related to anything. They're just all their own world unto themselves. And so if everything's a world unto yourself, you are forced to trust the experts because there's no uniting vision to put all this together. Because remember, no one man can know everything. Right. Uh, so uh, once that council of despair is trumpeted across everybody, then you listen to the experts. You, quote, follow the science, unquote, and that becomes the mantra. And that mantra uh, can lead you into ditches as easily as it can lead you into the light. Yes. Uh, and, and we're seeing that a lot of the folks that are saying, follow us, we have the truth, are either self-deceived or lying to us deliberately. If they're lying to us, I think it's because politics has gotten involved. I think yeah. the medic- medical profession, among many others, has made a mistake during the process of developing gills. The gills were designed to improve quality of care and to have discourse between different physicians to improve each other's techniques, the suite of materials and tools, medications uh, that they brought to bear on various illnesses, improved diagnostic techniques. All that made sense, uh, that the guilds would do that, and they would then set levels of proficiency to make sure that people who claim to be a healer were not shysters or quacks, if you will. All that made sense, but as it grew and grew, I think, outside of the parameters that were legitimate, to the point where it was a monopoly. Uh, a lot of criticism has been made, of, for example, of the Flexner report that it was essentially racist since it's tended to close down black-operated medical colleges, but not white-operated medical colleges. Uh, so there's Im- diverse, disparate impacts there, and one wonders, was it structured to do that? Uh, that is going to be an open question that's going to be debated very uh, viciously, <laughs> and perhaps it should be debated viciously if there was a hint of racism behind it. But you see the point is that yes. once we go down this path, when politics touches things, uh, the usual rule is that it ruins everything. Politicization of medicine now puts senators and representatives and court justices in charge of medicine, your medicine, because they're controlling state dollars as opposed to, uh, and that's another mistake, <laughs> making the state your healer is a huge catastrophe because that's not the state's function. And when you make that the state's function, the state then functions as God again in another area where you entrust them with your health as well as your education, as well as with your uh, retirement, as well as with your fill in the blank, right? Yes. So the more that they take, the more they control all aspects of life, the uh, the more tyrannical that things have to become because control is necessary to gain that utopia. And so we cede that control usually due to fear, and uh, fear over our own health is a very uh, potent force in our culture, and it's one that the politicians know how to manipulate and uh, twist every way they want to get what they want out of us, all the time parading themselves and putting themselves forth as heroes, our, our saviors. Dr. Rushduni emphasized over and over again that the tithe the requirement God puts on not just one tithe, but three tithes and how they operate. And anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about can go to the Institutes of Biblical Law or read Dr. Rushduni's book, Tithing and Dominion. But when Christians were confronted with the idea that I can't continue to sacrifice my children to bail by sending them to the state schools, it was pointed out, well, Public education is free. Well, of course, it's not free. But what these people, myself included, had to do was say, I don't want their quote unquote benefits. Well, medicine has gone that way as well. Certain doctors who really do operate from a biblical world and life view might not be covered by insurance or Medicare or Medicaid. And so people make their decisions based on the free money. But of course, we both know, Martin, it's not free. It's appropriated money. People aren't willingly putting their money to every medical procedure the government says. So does that mean that if we're going to take this back, it will be financially painful to Christians because their tax dollars are going to things that they'll never use and they never want to use? Well, that's an interesting question about economic pain. We know there's some economic pain when we homeschool or put our children in a Christian school. We're aware of the benefit of it. And so faithful Christians will accept that pain as the price of living 
in an anti-Christian uh, society, saying this is what it takes to do what God requires, to not turn my children over to Baal, to Molech worship in effect, but to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in all particulars. So, yes, we're going to be paying the property tax for a Christian, for a public school, state school that we do not intend to put our children in, and we'll pay for the homeschool materials or the uh, Christian school tuition for our children in a Christian school. So then the question is, what happens in the case of medication, of medicine? So what, what usually occurs is that when Christian doctors come online and they grasp this vision, they set the practices up. And they have building practices that are quite different from those that are in current situation, in the status-supported situation. And they recognize, as the previous generations of doctors did, that they are a professional. What that means is they also do pro bono work for free so that the infirm, those who cannot afford, are still accorded care. And this is done voluntarily because they recognize their calling uh, in this regard. I think this is a, a huge thing that we've missed is this notion of how do we pull this off? And yet there are examples out there of uh, medical practices that uh, operate on a Christian basis that are have full MDs are operating there, but they're Christians and they're operating biblically and they make sure that people who come to them for care, uh, they're taken care of whether they can pay it or not. Uh, and so, and the, and the pricing tends to be more fair because it's not being manipulated by all these status forces that uh, conspire together to create a, uh, a system where the you really can't control all the variables is the problem. <laughs> and so when we re, when we peel away all these status layers, we have something much more tenable and doable at the core of this. And I've seen examples of this in many places. Um, and more examples are going to be forthcoming as doctors start to see this as a better model to go by. Um, it might change the dynamics for insurance, for example, but here's where Dr. Restrini's uh, insights come in. He says, you know, and I've said this too, because I think Dr. Restrini's right. We have all these oddball standards for liability. We have limited liability for corporations so that CEO of a corporation is not personally affected if his corporation does something evil, even though he voted for it to do the evil thing, and there was harm and damage done. He cannot be personally uh, held accountable for it unless you pierce the corporate veil. He hides behind the corporation, and the corporation pays it, but he himself has no personal culpability for it. So when you limit liability, you incentivize irresponsible conduct because the consequences have been severed from your actions. But with doctors, we have something very different. We have infinite liability. You know, we, we say they must act like God and be perfect. And if they're not, well, we're going to sue the pants off of them. So uh, what we really need to do is scale back what we expect of doctors according to a more biblical notion that doctors were operate with a limited suite of tools, then they can get limited results. And there's nothing they can actually do to overcome us being irresponsible with their own health. We cannot you know, eat uh, 30 Snickers a day and smoke 40 uh, packs of cigarettes a week, and then come into the doctor and demand that he fix what our bad practices have set in motion. Rather, I'm glad you brought that up because... I think if you examine the trend of women not being the household managers that Proverbs 31 indicates they should be, you've lost sight of the fact that, for example, the mother cares more about the health of her children than some stranger. And if we have good practices, and this is where older women can teach the younger women how to love their husbands and children, and part of that love would be to teach them God's ways of health and, and how we're supposed to live, that then the doctor becomes the mother's advisor. In other words, you go to, I, I had a doctor who had been for my children when they were young. Uh, he was from Switzerland, and I would call him up, and he'd always say, well, what do you think? And, and I'd say, well, this is what I think. He goes, well, you're probably right. Let's let's look at it from that point of view. He acknowledged that with the person who spent all this time with the children, that I would have something of value to offer. Well, in some cases, when a mother gets very involved with her children's health, they've invented a syndrome that says there's something wrong with her 
I think it's called Munchausen by proxy. And, and we have to suspect her because she's just way too interested in her children's illness or things like that. So when the family gives up what God has entrusted to the family, and then the church in general being there to help the family do its job, my take is our irresponsibility, our laziness, the fact that we want to do other things leaves it in the hands of the experts. Yeah, we tend to compartmentalize things. And I think that's a mistake, uh, at least at this level of this topic. We should recognize that uh, health is a family concern. And uh, therefore, the parents are the first line of defense for health for the children. And so when the Levites would be invited to participate in that process in ancient Israel, they weren't uh, antagonistic toward the parents. They were supportive. They were the next line of defense to protect the children. There was no arrogance about it. Nowadays, though, doctors will chuckle and laugh and tell you, now nah, you're taking too many vitamins and uh, don't do that. Don't listen to these people. Listen to me. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe uh, that's the other point is that when you reduce the human body to a machine, then all you're going to see is that the old saying, uh, if you have a hammer, every problem is a nail. Well, modern medicine is a hammer. And it's great with nails, but it's not great with everything that isn't a nail, but you hammered anyway. And that's that's kind of the issue. And so that's why Dr. Restroni says the doctor needs to know his limitations. And then correspondingly, the mother needs to know uh, all the giftings that she's been accorded by as the head of the household to see to its running smoothly. Uh, and if she has to bring in a medical doctor because it's something that requires it, then her wisdom dictates, this is uh, out of my wheelhouse. This is not something I can handle. I think a rabid dog has bit my son. I don't think uh, a, a warm compress is going to do it or, or, or aromatherapy or something like this. <laughs> it's not going to solve the problem of rabies uh, taking his life. So then you might take the steps that would resolve that rabies in a way that you know. So you need to be well-informed. And, you, and, and the mother needs to know her limits, but she also must operate within what God has given her as a legitimate domain and operate with confidence and operate with growing knowledge so that she becomes, if you will, the first doctor for her children. She's closest to them. She knows what's going on. She, If something starts to go out of range of what she's used to, with they say that she's uh, nursing an infant and something seems wrong to her, she would know. You know, it's not, not just that a doctor dismisses and say, nah, everything's fine. Everything measures out. They should take a look and take seriously what the mother is saying that perhaps we need to diagnose something that's at the root of her suspicions. Let's take them seriously and not just poo poo them. And I think now we're talking about the relationship, personal relationship between you and your doctor. Uh, and I think that's, that's a huge area because it's a human relation. And like every other relation, it should be mediated by God's covenant. We do not relate to one another directly without God in the middle. We relate through God because God has expectations of me and my behavior toward you and your behavior toward me, and that our conversation would be honoring to him, and it would reflect God's ethics, his laws, his moral requirements, and what his expectation is of love toward one another, too. Yes. So there, there's, there's these obligations that are weighed into every conversation. There are no trite conversations. There's, it's, they're all important. And so these relationships should also be mediated by the word of God, which is where it gets dicey with humanistic medicine because a relationship to many doctors is purely at a humanistic, mechanistic level. They are a technician that I'm visiting to tweak something on my body, right? And sometimes that might be an appropriate analogy if it's uh, a bone that's broken, let's fix the bone. But if, but other areas of health, it is inapplicable because we are fearfully and wonderfully made, which means we are very complicated beings. You know, I always loved the way uh, that Matthew Henry put it. Man is a very strange creature, a ray of heaven united with a clod of dirt. That's <laughs> us. And so, uh, consequently, when you look at us and say, wow, that's amazing that a ray of heaven united, to a daughter, united with a clod of dirt results in hands and fingers and eyes and ears. Uh, but, you know, he who made the ear, can he not hear? He who made the eye, does he not see? 
So these are the things that the scripture asks of us to realize, why would you not trust what God has to say since he formed these things yes. and created them yes. as the author, author of the complexity that we are, and therefore he should get first crack at guiding our steps, not last consideration or mentioned at a funeral, for example. So yeah. we would we want to say, let's bring God in earlier in the process, not at the funeral process. Yes. Uh, let me let me say there's two more things that I'd like to go over before we're done. Sure. The first being that in any endeavor, whether you need the help of a doctor, you need the help of a lawyer, it is important to know their presuppositions. So as I've been deciding the menu for my family, how to make sure we get the best food, how do we make sure we get the best care? I always looked for people who would share a biblical world and life view because then I could really communicate. But that's not always an option, as you know. But I have established when I'm forced to see some person in the medical field for whatever reason that I state my position. And so I had reason because one of my doctors retired and I had to find another one. I went for recommendations. And the first meeting, there was nothing particularly wrong, but I wanted to meet the person. And I said, I want to just make something clear. I'm responsible for my health. I don't make you responsible for my health. And I will come to you for advice. And if it makes sense to me, I'll follow it. And if it doesn't make sense, well, we'll talk about it. And it's Martin, it's funny to see the look on their faces. <laughs> it's kind of like, what? <laughs> and I said, I'm not going to hold you responsible for not knowing everything, but I'm not going to be responsible to do everything that you tell me to do. So I think whether we're looking at a lawyer to help us settle a dispute, we've got to be really clear that we're responsible for these outcomes, not them. And that's a perfectly phrased point, because this is also true with education. The best way to go with education, if it's doable for you, is homeschooling. So you're directly responsible for the education of your children. But you can delegate that to a Christian school, but the ultimate responsibility is still yours, right? So the delegation is a legitimate thing, but you are still responsible. So that means that you can't just let go and let God and assume the Christian school is doing a great job, because... You know, thing, institutions deteriorate, teachers diverge from biblical reality, and so you still need to monitor uh, best you can, even in a good Christian school, because there's a certain kind of uh, evil that only a good person can do and a good institution can do, because you're lulled into a false sense of confidence. What This Christian school certainly couldn't possibly teach this. Well, maybe they might, <laughs> and on your watch, you need to catch it. So, yes, you can delegate education, but it's still your responsibility. By the same token, taking care of your own health and the health of your children is the where we start. That's primary responsibility. But it can be delegated to a doctor, but still the responsibility is yours because you are selecting the doctor. You are now uh, allowing a doctor to have a say-so over your child or yourself and therefore, you must realize that you have agency in this area and and you've not given it up unless you know, you're unconscious and someone else is doing your decision-making for you. But so long as you have breath and, and a mind uh, operating, that's still on you. You need to choose a doctor wisely. You need to know when the doc to follow the doctor's advice and when not to do so because this is not a tyranny. This is not a dictatorship. And this is, believe it or not, there's a lot of more art than science still in in medicine. Yes. Uh, and there are different things can still be positive uh, and helpful to someone. And it's amazing, you know, it used to be that nutrition was poo-pooed. And this is obvious when you look at the so-called food pyramids from the 1960s. What was what was supposed to be the how much food you're supposed to eat of each kind of food, and we all thought that this was pro being produced and put forward as often uh, authoritative wisdom from the medical profession, and it was not. It was coming from you know, General Mills or Kellogg or some other people who wanted to yes. see lots of, lots of <laughs> cereal being consumed, even if it was kaboom full of sugar and added vitamins. But whatever the cereal was, apparently industry had a lot more to say in the shape of the food pyramids, and those food pyramids evolved over time. So sometimes the food is um, demonized, eggs will kill you, 
then later on you should have eggs because they're a healthy form of this, that, and the other. So it's always provisional. It's always, you never know what, where you're getting. And modern science, if it's dictating to you, often we find out later that the, what the diktats were led us astray. They yes. were not, not, the, not true godly wisdom. Now, the good news about the word of God is I have a Bible here, and near as I can tell, these Bibles say the same things as was written in the original by the prophets and the apostles. Uh, and that's a very, very positive thing to realize the word of God doesn't change. You know, there's 613 commandments. We're not going to get a 614th one. Let me add a little bit on this topic of legislation. You know, we are continually being barraged by more and more rules that are not in the Bible. Phariseeism is just rampant in our culture. It's rampant on Facebook. It's rampant on social media. It's rampant on TV. It's rampant from every pundit. They are all saying you should do this and not that. This is the essence, by the way, of Phariseeism. You know, that spikenard should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor, said Judas Iscariot, the, the traitor. So it's always the traitors that have best advice of what to do. We should recognize that there's a, a larger a component of Phariseeism in the medical field of what should and should not be done. And a lot of it is not motivated by truth or care, but rather this this is everything should be done this particular way because it's always to be done this particular way. Your disciples eat bread with unwashed hands. That's not what we've been taught. So the Pharisees are always bringing things on to that are not in the word of God. Why am I mentioning this? Because the temptation is for us to fight back with our own form of Phariseeism. We of all people should then say, Rather than substituting one Phariseeism for another, my own for the doctors, I should be on guard against all Phariseeism, including my own. And I start with my own children to also inculcate self-government for them so they can make their own decisions and not me telling them you ought not to eat this or that or not eat. Because there comes a point where you guide them, but then they need to make their own decisions too. So exactly. yes. I, I, I've been on medical sites on Facebook where they say, I have this condition, what should I do? And then five different people have five completely different things that they advise. And then they, uh, there's a free-for-all attacking each other. No, 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 this has to be this way. You're, you're wrong. You're going to hurt them if you do that. No, you're going to hurt them if you do that. So now all of a sudden, if the Christians are squabbling among themselves how the, what the correct medical procedure should be, people are going to start to think the doctors are looking pretty good by comparison because it's just a, a, a riot in the Christian's uh, ghetto here. I can avoid the Christian riot and just deal with the doctor who seems to be pretty straight-laced and calm versus <laughs> all the screaming and yelling and, and uh, blocking of people. On, so you see what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I do. But it, it goes back to the idea that if any member of the family is responsible to become expert, not the expert, final expert, but expert in things having to do with health and wellness, the mother seems to be the best suited and positioned for it. And when uh, people ask young ladies, what do they hope to become or career-wise, as someone who's done it, I think the most rewarding and useful and needed career is that of the woman of the house who is looking out for the things that will be most effective in furthering the health and wellness of her family. Right. Because care and nurture includes the health issues, yes. includes nutrition, but it also includes what do we do when an illness comes. Exactly. There's, there's, there's plenty of Old and New Testament uh, data on this, and she's to apply the best set of data that she can put together prayerfully without becoming herself a Pharisee. And, yes. that's the, that, and that's the temptation because, believe me, the Pharisee is strong in all of us. So we have to actually consciously push that away from ourselves and say, yes, I need to make them wiser than myself. So perhaps they'll be telling me, mom, this is not the best solution to this problem Right, uh, right. when I'm older. Right? It reminds me of in Star Wars, the force is big in this one. The Pharisee is big in this one. <laughs> yeah. But you see, you want to look at a, find a Pharisee, look in the mirror. So all of us have that problem. There you go. So, so we warned against this tendency and it starts with adding rules and regulations and touch not taste nots that are not in scripture yeah uh, now there might be wisdom there might be wisdom behind it we have to acknowledge that but they also don't but they do not necessarily have the force of a moral imperative that the bible has so we have to make that distinction yeah so i said there were two more things the last one and this might be too big to wrap up this but this will require a martin Selbretti short answer 
Do we not find a lot of the problems, whether it's education, legal matters, medicine, tied into the idea that somehow or other we've accepted that being licensed by the state gives someone authority and effectiveness? And and I joke all the time, you know, everybody has to have a driver's license, therefore, we're all safe drivers. Every beautician needs to have a beautician's license, but so that's why no one ever will get a bad haircut. So have we allowed a standardized body that says this person's good and this person's bad to basically tie us to something that isn't really God-honoring or to our benefit? Well, that's an interesting question. This is why I mentioned the guilds from the middle uh, medieval era. They were responsible for quality control of those who operated in terms of the guild. We saw attempts to solve this problem with things like the Better Business Bureau, which is not a state-operated thing. It is a, a private agency which sought to uh, vet, if you will, businesses based on feedback and other parameters to determine who can you trust because there are shysters out there. This is a fallen world with sinners who are more than willing to try to take, separate you from your money, from your property, maybe even your free health that they can benefit from it. Uh, so we, those, the function of the guilds was to handle this issue. Why was this all turned over to the state? Well, it's, again, human sin, and because Christians did not have biblical alternatives and expand these ideas of how the guild should operate, how should food be made safe, who's going to be responsible, uh, were we then setting up corporations to be free to and companies and organizations to sell tainted food to us? You know, This is why we ended up with an FDA to say we have to make sure that these meats are clean and pure. And actually, they don't do very little in that regard. This is obvious if you do some study of how they handle uh, pork products. But I don't want to get into that. I want to make this as short an answer as possible, is that we need to expand the range of the private organizations that handle this so they become trustworthy arbiters of value and quality and safety and professional standards. And that's a professional standard, not a government standard, but a professional standard. And a professional standard is one that continues to grow. A government standard is not growing because uh, the government just sets that mark and say, this is what it needs to be, and everyone needs to hit this mark, but doesn't have to go past it. But with a professional standard, we see improvement of the standard over time uh, because the profession grows. It's not intent on being static, like the government is setting a standard that says, okay, here's a standard, and we're going to enforce it. Whereas the profession says, these are the standards we want to use these as a baseline for further, further improvement of a standard. So those organizations might have to start. When there was a Journal of Biblical Ethics in Medicine, that presumed maybe we'd be starting up a, a council for biblical ethics where doctors would then aggregate and then be participating at these levels. There's something similar. The AAPS, Dr. Jane Orient is the head of it, and it has its own newsletter, et cetera, and a pretty good organization of physicians across the United States. Things like this would be a better way to go than having the state involved in these processes. But the reason the state is involved is because of Christian dereliction, because we've uh, evacuated an area, then the state says somebody has to do this, and the Christians aren't, then the humanists will, using the vehicle of the state, which makes it inefficient uh, and very expensive and tyrannical. So if it's done through a Christian mechanism, then you can have a separate form of government over these things, which is at the privatized, decentralized level of the guild that polices itself. If you don't clean house on yourself, then expect the state to have to do that. If you don't have internal self-government, expect external government to have to crush uh, all evidences of wickedness in us. And that's a big mistake because uh, the, the, the stick that the state wields is a big fat one. It's not focused on the problem that needs to be dealt with. Uh, they They hit everyone at once when they hit one person. Yes, yes. Well, thanks. That was... I think a complete answer, but obviously things that we can delve into in the future with business licenses in general. So listeners, I'd like to, if you're listening to this prior to February 4th and 5th of 2022, consider either attending or live streaming the upcoming Faith and Medicine Conference, 
If you want to know where you can find out more, there is a notice on the Calcedon Facebook page. And I'm pretty sure if you put into a search Faith and Medicine Conference, Atlanta, Georgia, February 4th and 5th, you'll come up with it. Martin, as always, you're a wealth of information. And I look forward to, since I don't think I'll be attending, to be able to see a recording of all the the presentations at that conference. I think it's going to be a very strong conference. I want to give a shout out to Dr. Rhett Bergeron, who's been pushing this forward uh, faithfully and, and sacrificially. I think this is a work that God's going to honor and he will grow this thing. Yes, indeed. Listeners, if you have any questions, comments, or even suggestions for future episodes, you can always reach us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.